Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries. Uh, we are going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're at the third podcast. As I mentioned, and remember from the first two podcasts, we're starting at the actual baptism of Jesus. The idea is that this is the character development of, of Matthew, the author. If we don't know the background of, of who Jesus is, we stand a chance of actually misunderstanding what he says on the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? So, remember from the first two podcasts, Jesus didn't just come as a teacher of morals and ethics and principles. He did. He did that, right? Uh, but there's so much more. He came as a rescuer of those who could not, would not rescue themselves. He came for those who can't right? Heaven's going to be filled with redeemed those who didn't. He came for the chronically unrighteous who will not change, who cannot change, and who are certainly not enough to make a claim on heaven or on God's favor. Be perfect, he says, Matthew 5.48. I mean, come on, who can stand? Only him, and that's the point. And when he speaks to people who can't, to the unrighteous, there's power to change. So think of it in the same or similar categories as God the Creator speaking in order into chaos in Genesis 1. Jesus is doing that on the hillside, uh, within and among great human chaos, void, emotional, spiritual identity disorder. That's what he does. That's what Jesus came to do. That's his passion. And eventually we're going to make it to the mount and hear Jesus speak to us. But hopefully we will hear it differently after we've looked at Jesus, uh, the baptism, uh, in the temptation, and in the calling of the disciples. And Jesus will pop off the page even more wonderful than before. So, is this important? I mean, what's the difference? Look, if you're listening to this and you know you've fallen short of God's expectations, I mean, you're feeling shame, you're feeling guilt, you're feeling like God's disappointed in you, even though you've tried and tried and tried. Maybe you've given up. Maybe you wonder about your faith now. Wonder, maybe you wonder if you ever had faith. Uh, and you're afraid that like two-thirds of Christians, when they're honest, at times, when they see Jesus face-to-face -face in heaven, they are anxious that they'll see disappointment uh, or anger or disgust. So this portrayal of Jesus that we're going to do in this podcast series, his heart, his DNA, his passion, his understanding of his mission, I think will encourage you and make you smile and won't shame you. It might even make you dance. And by the way, that's a shameless plug for our online gospel intensive. If you want to know how to do this more, if this is uh, urging you on and you go, well, what, what do I do? Look, I recommend, this is why we built the dance, www.the-dance.org. Uh, check it out. All right. Um, now, so that's if you're you're listening to this and, and you're church damaged, you're beat up, you're disappointment, and, and you, you feel like you're not one of the chosen. But also, if you're a quote-unquote successful Christian, uh, and you think you're doing pretty good, According to the principles Jesus laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, at least you're doing better than me, but that's a low bar, and so many around you. I'm guessing, tell me if this is not true, in, in those still dark, quiet moments, you know you haven't pulled it off, not well enough, or you're not sure if you have, right? And by the way, how do you ever know, uh, if, if how do you really how can you really be sure if you're not actually feeling the love of Jesus? And look, this might offend you at first, and I'm, I'm not happy about that, but hang in there. It's going to end up 
being really good news for failures, spiritual failures, and supposed spiritual successes equally. All right, we're going to pick up around Matthew 3, uh, verse 5 or so. In the last podcast, we covered the first set of verses in Matthew 3. Here's the NIV, Matthew 3, 5. People went out to him, Jesus, from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Oh, yuck. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones... God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so. Now it's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. All right. Now, if you remember from last time, in addition to reading the NIV, we, we also want to do a, an expanded, interpretive, highly interpretive version, a screenplay version, uh, for lack of better description. All right, so, so here we go. John saw that this was not just a few people, not just religious zealots. It looked like everyone came, lines upon lines of men, women, boys, and girls. In fear and humiliation, they bowed their heads in submission to John's baptism in the shallow, muddy Jordan River. They were not theologians. They had not heard about the need for baptism. This was new. But if this fiery preacher said that this was a way to at least begin to do what God wanted, they were in. It was a physical, public confession of their individual and corporate failure and faithlessness. It was a way that each could publicly say, die sin. The implication was that this was the best way to prepare for God's arrival. What was it? Hmm, turns out God's way is going to be higher than ours. Jerusalem and the other villages around must have emptied out because everyone landed here. A new exodus, John thought to himself. And if so, would there be a new rescue? A new Sinai? Well, you can bet that this ticked the priest off. I get it. This was a challenge not only to their authority, but to everything they stood for. This was personal. They were the protectors of God's name, his reputation, not this vagabond. God's favor from Israel comes from the temple from the offerings, from the priesthood. They didn't know this person. He wouldn't approved. They had no idea what his theological bent was. It was troubling. It was disruptive. 
He wasn't a Pharisee or Sadducee. Nobody claimed him. In fact, it's rare that they agreed on anything, but they agreed that this guy was way out in left field. He was a troublemaker, a disruptive, a firebrand, a lightning rod, and he was creating a huge mess. Emotional fear and chaos spread around him like a wildfire. This must be stopped. Well, this was for sure. He clearly wasn't encouraging people to go to the temple or to make an offering for their sin or to confess faithlessness. He wasn't supporting the work of the priesthood. In fact, he was acting like he was the high priest, because who else could forgive sins? After all, and God couldn't be pleased that his temple and his priesthood were being undermined and bypassed. If this were from God, he would certainly have told them, right? Very troubling. And John didn't help his case when he looked over the heads of the people in line waiting to be baptized and saw the moralistic, pious Pharisees and the erudite, sophisticated, priestly class Sadducees standing at a distance, clearly shocked at what was happening. And clearly, from the look in their eyes, they were just despising the happenings that were going on beneath them in this growing rabble of humanity. John did not choose to give them the usual words of respect. No, they were not part of this making a way for God. They were roadblocks. Respect must be earned. So John angrily pointed his long bony fingers with wildly unkempt nails towards the religious scrum on the upper ridge and growled loudly at them. Oh, look who has finally shown up clearly said with bitter sarcasm, not to join the rest of us and repent too, but to undermine, to take over spiritual killjoys, snake in the grass. Now, looking directly at them, he yelled up to no one in particular, loud enough for the entire mass of humanity to hear, spittle leapt from his bearded mouth. Did God tell you to come out of your whole snakes, to flee from the destruction that God is bringing to his temple, yours? Not his? Of course not. By the way, when was the last time you spoke to God or heard from him? I'd be terrified if I were you. Talk is cheap. If you are indeed afraid of God's judgment, it's time to act. But I know you. Why would you submit to be baptized? Why would you? Our so-called shepherds humiliate yourself, soil your precious robes by getting baptized by the likes of me. It's not your DNA. You tragically think that you don't need to repent, that you don't need to publicly confess your crimes against God, humanity, and creation. Well, so be it. You will answer to God himself. You know, um, here's, here's my notes on the on this section. It doesn't appear that the Pharisees and Sadducees actually got baptized. At least that's our impression. They only criticized, they looked down, they cast shame at those uneducated, foolish, unwashed people. And take a look at Matthew 21, uh, verse 23 to 27, and see what you think. They're probably just wondering how to get themselves out of this mess. And remember the spectrum from last time. One commentator rightly says this, the kingdom of God is much more than wrath of God, of course, but it is nothing less. The wrath of God is not the irritability of God. It is the love of God and friction with injustice. I love that. It's the warm, steady, patient, but absolutely fair grace of God in collision with manifest injustice. It's the warm, steady, patient, but absolutely fair grace of God in collision with manifest injustice. God's wrath does not contradict God's love. It proves it. A love that pampers injustice is not 
lovable. Remember, we said you could look at this in a spectrum with with the kingdom of God or Jesus being a wrathful justice, uh, hell and damnation person, or Jesus the love uh, producer. But we said that it's not really a straight line spectrum; it's a circle, and th- that point at the end of extreme of each side of the spectrum is the same. God's wrath and God's love coexist. It's beyond our comprehension, but there it is. All right, Uh, back to the screenplay, just a couple of lines. Well, I understand. Why would you come to be baptized? You're already children of Abraham, he said sarcastically, doing air quotes over the last words. He continued, and so favored by God, no matter what. Nothing to fear, right? Well, Uh, There was some Old Testament theology that, taken out of context, would support the view that there was the Torah, right, the law, uh, and there were constrictions of the law, but Israel was somehow protected in a favored nation clause. So, for instance, verses in Exodus 32, 13 to 14, listen to Moses. He's praying to God, and Israel is messing up, right? And he pleads with God, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the skies, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever, meaning God you promised. Verse 14, and then God, the Lord, relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. All right, so there's precedent. They messed up, pled to God, and God relented. Uh, And so... By the time of Jesus, there was an understanding that they were immune from from all of that. But we would be well reminded that even Moses did not enter the promised land during his lifetime because he messed up. Just saying. All right, back to the screenplay. But see these rocks, John says, those over there, that big one you're standing on? God can make them children of Abraham too. Well, would that make them in good standing with God? Would that make them favorable by God, the judge, when he comes? And that's happening right now, by the way. God is coming as a disappointed lumberjack, an angry axeman, and his axe is already in his hands, and his mighty swing has begun. Bad trees, trees without fruit, no matter how old or quote-unquote special, whatever their DNA might be, they're going down. They will taste the fire, even dead and dying Abrahamic trees. We see all these children of Abraham around me who are terrified of their consequences of their sins, ashamed and guilt-ridden, this is largely your doing. How have you helped them? Have you done the one thing to rescue them from their miserable existence? And if if so, tell me what it is. Tell us all. You wonder about this baptism? Well, your temple mikvahs supposedly use special holy water, but come on, that hadn't done squat to cleanse them. By the way, as a little side note, around the temple, there were special cleansing baths where you would walk into, if you were a man, you would dip into this bath and uh, you would administer a baptism, so to speak. And supposedly any sin that you had picked up on the road to the temple had been washed off of you. All right. Uh, so back to the clean, back back to the uh, back. To, okay, back to the screenplay. 
You wonder about baptism. Your temple mikvah is supposedly used special holy water, but come on, that hasn't done squat to cleanse them. They know it. God knows it. What does washing in the murky waters of the Jordan do for them? Nothing. Not much. I'm only washing them externally with, with this water. What I am doing has no authority to remove their guilt and shame, but God himself is on the way. His arrival is imminent. He's just around the corner, and he has all the authority in the world. I can't even carry his water, and he will do the real cleansing. His baptism is not with water, but spiritual. It's dry cleaning with fire that burns away shame and guilt. That's so different from what I'm doing. Sorry to change metaphors, but like a good farmer, he will finally separate the wheat from the chaff. The latter will be tossed in field fires, and that's his right. Well, you corrupt teachers, where will you be? There we go. Look, John is being completely Christocentric. Christ is the center of everything that he's teaching, and he knows the limitations of his baptisms and of the people's repentances. There's no such thing as a perfect repentance, right? And the coming after, opitso, refers to to disciple, not time being. So the one who's coming after me is actually suggesting that Jesus is going to submit to being his disciple. And again, here, this is so important. The character that is being drawn by Matthew is is one that's comfortable with humiliation, with submission. Jesus, it's his DNA, right? But John says, you know, it's not going to turn out that way. I'm going to, I'm going to become his disciple. Okay, so John is preaching about this kingdom that's coming, a baptism that that's coming, the spirit that is coming, and I wonder honestly, because it's not clear. I under, I really want to know what John understood about the spirit. I'll have to ask him. It's not clear in the text. Was he thinking that it was the spirit as the power of God that came upon the judges? You know, like Samson, the kings of Israel, something like a warrior power. Or did he think something else, something more uh, like what we think today? It's not sure. But nevertheless, what he said was true. John's baptism, his baptism just made people wet and gave them something to do following their confession, their sense of awareness of godly sorrow, their desire to repent. Jesus' baptism, by the way, and it's he himself, to be clear, that's coming, uh, and, and this is not what John is doing, the Jesus baptism, this is something very different. It makes people children of the Spirit of God. Jesus' baptism is spiritual. John's baptism is water. So Jesus' work in the repentant people burns something away. It creates a new heart. It changes them, a new motivation. So new heart, new spirit, new cleansing fire, and it will be so noticeable when it happens. Yeah? All right, back to the screenplay. Then Jesus came. As the sun was beginning to sink in the western skies, a new light was rising in the east. Jesus of Nazareth was just now coming upon the crowd of people. He was alone, quiet, conservative. Um, He looked like all the rest. He was a Jew. And Jesus just got in line, so unassuming. He was focused. He was thirsty and weary from his journey through the desert. Like the others, he also came to be baptized in the Jordan River by this wild preacher. So, some stuff here. First, do you know, and this I found this fascinating, Jesus doesn't condemn John for the harshness of his message, right? You would think Jesus would, would go, oh, no, John, you know, you, you attract more bees with honey kind of lecture, right? 
but he doesn't say that. He doesn't say he should be kinder to the leaders or less judgmental or less critical or less sarcastic, less scary. You know, the hellfire and brimstone message that he was spewing out, right? He doesn't say, come on, you want to grow the movement, right? Because, you know, because people won't come to that kind of rhetoric. <laughs> he doesn't say any of that. And by the way, the people come, just saying. And second, uh, and this is important when we begin to think about what and how Jesus is speaking on the mountain in a little while, his demeanor is humble. That's, that's Jesus's character, humble. And if we better understand Jesus, we have to describe him as, as humble. And, and we don't mean by this a bumper sticker of any kind, right? We're also saying that that's true for God. Shockingly, do you know that this was God himself humiliating himself to publicly be baptized? Because he didn't need washing. It could be misconstrued, right? But it was communicating something important to the people, to the hurting sinners, word and deed. And these, these people that had come had fallen way short of God's expectation and who unrescued would be doomed. So Jesus humiliates himself, sets aside his rightful glory again, right? He did it once at his, the incarnation, and he gets he's willing to get brushed with the same brush as all the sinners. He is the rescuing, personal, humble God who identifies with sinners. He doesn't have to, but he does. And he is sinless. He embraces the unclean, though he's the only clean person ever. Our God, listen to this, is a humiliating God. Self-humiliating, right? He humiliates the proud as well. But he is a God who knows humiliation. It's his DNA. That's, that's got to be troubling at first glance, right? But come on, everything God does with us and for us is a humiliation. Think of where we come from and think where he comes from. God who does not need to ever, and I would say shouldn't ever, humiliate himself. Rather, he should be attributed worship and glory. He is pleased to humiliate himself for our sake. It's crazy. You can't make this stuff up. And listen, this isn't new. In Psalm 113, verses 4 to 8, we read this. The Lord is exalted over the nations, all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. And you can read it like he has to even stoop down to look at this creation. That's how high he is and how low we are. So to stoop down, he has to humiliate himself. He doesn't need to. And then verse 7, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap again. He doesn't have to. He humiliates himself to associate with the poor and the needy. He seats them with princes and with the princes of their people. Now, the Hebrew word stoops down as shifal, which, which refers to, to making others or making oneself humiliated. So that's what God does. He willingly accepts humiliation, or in a sense, he makes himself humiliated in, in order to even look down upon creation. That's how high he rightfully is. And even further humiliation to be incarnated, and even more humiliation to be subsequently baptized, along with failures and lo losers and rebels who've fallen sh short of God's expectations. He's identifying with them. Isn't this encouraging for failures like me, for, like, like you? This is what God does. He doesn't stop doing it. So if you're afraid to see God, if you're ashamed to look up and see in the eyes of God, hear this. Just let it wash over you. God willingly humiliates himself to love losers like you and me. Um, there we go. 
uh, let me make an observation about the baptism. John never says that his baptism was effective, meaning that it earned God's favor, that it worked, that it stayed God's wrath, right? Matthew doesn't say to the reader, so go and follow Jesus and get baptized. That should do it, right? I'm not saying it's not a good thing to do or a valuable thing to do, but John never says that it's effective. He doesn't know. This isn't a go and do likewise passage, even though often it's preached that way. God's baptism is better. It's so much better. John's baptism doesn't really clean. You can read Hebrews 10 to see that the, the, the entire temple operation didn't cleanse a single guilt away from a single Jew. God has a better plan that actually works. But look, repentance, good. Godly sorrow, good. Public confession, good. And this humiliating ceremony where you go and show publicly that you're your concern for your salvation, to mark it down that you need a rescue and you can't or won't rescue yourself, that's just ridiculously good. But ultimately, there is only one, one God who is coming, Jesus, who alone can rescue, who alone can clean and give new hearts and give the Spirit. That's the gospel. All right, we're going to stop here. Uh, one more podcast on this baptism scene. I mean, look, is, is this good? Is this good for you? Are you getting a sense of this Jesus? Maybe you knew at one point in time, but forgot. Uh, and, and I think we evangelicals and, and other religions shift to him, the principal teacher. That's good, I guess, you know, but, but it's lacking. I need much more than somebody telling me new principles. I know the principles. My problem is I can't do them or I won't do them. So look, if you are a spirit-filled Jesus follower, this is the Jesus who knows you, who is pursuing you, who is embracing you, and his spirit is inside of you, and his passion is to make you feel loved. Now, it's highly likely, if you're like most Christians, you haven't felt that love for a long time. There's roadblocks in your brain. We can talk about that. By the, by the way, go to the dance, the-dance.org, and go through that. It's only two hours, and you'll learn much, much more about that roadblock, that critical inner voice that continues to condemn you, Christians too. And that can be changed by God's power, by the Holy Spirit's power right? And not by working harder. By working harder, you never know if you're good enough. You never know if you've completed enough. And that condemning voice is not going to ever say, well, you did it. Good job. So this is not where, therefore, I shift to telling you about here are the three applications you need to do this week to open up a lock for that new relationship that God would go, hmm, finally, I like this guy. I like this lady now. <laughs> no, you already have that relationship. God loves you as much as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father already. It's, it's just all of the, the, the bad wiring and crap in your scarred brain, that nasty critical inner voice that's killing you. It's not all your fault. Uh, you're responsible, but it's not all your fault. How can you begin to feel the height and width and length and depth of the love of this Jesus, this humiliating, pursuing lover Jesus towards you as you are, whether you're an addict, whether you're a liar, betrayer, an underachiever, uh, unfaithful, you're just a beat up, falling short one? Well, the answer is ask. You can meditate on Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. Paul is actually modeling it. And ask yourself the question, how do I get this? How do I begin to grasp the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ? And check out what the passage says. Enjoy. And keep asking until you feel the love. Is that intriguing? All right. 
See you next time on uh, this Gospel Rant. Help us get the important series out to other beat-up, church-damaged Christians, failure Christians, Christians who've fallen from faith, quote-unquote, those who feel like failures, those who feel like they're a disappointment to Jesus, who might be too ashamed to look up, and they'll thank you. Give me feedback, bill at gospel-app.com. All right, until next time, take heart, child of God. Hi, I'm Zach. And I'm Randy. And we're from Salty Saints Podcast. We're a theology and apologetics podcast. We hope to better equip you to be salt and light for your community. Uh, We hope that we can help you to go out and be a reflection of Jesus Christ to those around you, uh, to your friends and your family, and especially to those that do not know Christ. To find out more, subscribe at lifeaudio.com.